You're listening to Catholic Chicago. Ahead, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you programs about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks so much for listening or watching our program here this morning on what is Martin Luther King Day. We are uh, tell we are recording this a little early. It's now Friday the fourteenth, but uh, it'll air on MLK Day. So, uh, not taking any phone calls today, uh, but nevertheless. We still have a very interesting program here. I'm sure you'll be interested in, in uh, listening and, and watching to, uh, watching of it. it uh, so here we are, uh, January in Chicago. Nothing better than January in Chicago, right? And uh, we've just started the legislative session. Um, we actually really haven't started. They've canceled the first two weeks. So uh, we're having a little bit of a slow start here. But um, So we're going to deviate a little bit from some of the public policy topics. We talk about mostly you know, Springfield-centric, and we're going to go um, a little broader here today. Um, so our three guests that we'll be talking to today in the next hour, uh, first up will be uh, Patrick Brown. He is a writer for the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, I would strongly urge people to go to that website. There's a lot of good information, a lot of uh, interesting topics that they write about, broad, a broad variety of, of, of topics concerning Catholics, Christians, and all people interested in good public policy. Um, he'll be our first guest. We're going to talk a little bit about um, family-centric economic policy. I know that's really got everybody charged up on a Monday morning to listen to it, but I'll talk about it a little bit. It's very important uh, to hear what he's talking about, um, about changing some public policy uh, to help families, uh, as opposed to, uh, I don't know what we're doing right now. Um, so that's the first topic. Uh, second topic is we're going to talk to Don Fitzpatrick. She's uh, the Respect Life Coordinator here at the Archdiocese of Chicago with the Office of uh, Dignity and uh, Solidarity and Human Dignity. And she's going to talk a little bit about the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, important coming up that anniversary, March for Life in uh, D.C. coming up, and there was a March for Life in Chicago. We'll talk about Roe v. Wade and the importance it's had and, and maybe what's going to happen with Dobbs. And then finally, we're going to bring in Zach Wickman, one of my colleagues at the Catholic Conference, to talk about uh, the upcoming legislative session, Springfield, to see what uh, he thinks and we think uh, is going to happen here in the next couple of months or so as we get ready for another legislative session that's uh, quickly uh, upon us already. So without further ado, let's do this. Um, let's bring in Patrick, um, if we can find him or see him. And there he is. Voila. Thanks to the uh, wonders of modern technology. He's right here with us. Um, Patrick, do you go by Patrick or Pat or does it matter? Patrick's fine. Patrick. Uh, Patrick Brown from the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, describe, you should probably describe, what is Ethics and Public Policy Center what, to you? What do you mean? Uh, yeah, we're, well, we're a think tank. We're based in, in D.C., and we've been fighting uh, the fight to advance a uh, society that's grounded in, um, uh, you know, the best ideals of America, strengthening families and, and civil society uh, since the early 70s. We've got a, a wide array of writers who write on all 
facets of public policy and have really been involved in the, uh, the fights over uh, protecting unborn children and, and defending the sanctity of marriage. And so I'm really just trying to be a voice for those values in D.C. And some of the talking heads you'll see on talk shows, you people wonder, like, where do those people work, where do they come from? Many times it's people at Ethics and Public Policy Center. There's some names that you probably have heard of uh, that, that get interviewed on a regular basis. And uh, here we are talking to one of them today. Um, Patrick, I wanted to talk about uh, some of your writings. And you, you write about a number of different topics. And, and if we have time at the end, I want to ask you about one of your articles you wrote about Roe and what it— and, and the Dobbs and going forward, but I don't know if we'll get to that. But it seems like you've written a couple pieces about, um, and, and I think I was joking when I mentioned you at the beginning that um, some people kind of glaze over when they talk about economic policy. It's like, boy, what couldn't be more boring, right? But ironically enough, when, you know, I was looking at the Quinniac poll the other day that, that came out about the president that was talked about in public opinion polling. And, and, and in one of the things that they always ask about is what are the issues you're most concerned about? Inevitably, almost every election, every poll has economy, economic issues at the top or it's almost always at the top unless it's probably wartime or some like terrorism events going on. It's always at the top. But we really don't spend a whole lot of time like what does that mean? I mean, how does uh, Congress, uh, the president and legislatures in in the course, I mean, how policies that they adopt, how can they help? Uh, you know, advance the common good. And and it gets really mired down into a lot of complex things, et cetera. But I think your writings are interesting. I wanted to talk to you today, and I'll just kind of tee this up for you, but you, you talk about a family-centered approach to to tax policy and public policy. And some of the things we're doing wrong today um, and some of the things we could do better. Uh, there, There's a lot of talk in, in conservative circles about what, what Hungary's doing and comparing that to Sweden and things like that. And, and that's kind of it kind of generated a whole new conversation. But talk a little bit about what you're talking about when you, when you mentioned like a family-centered approach to, to economic policy. Sure. So I think a lot of times when people talk about the economy, they tend to think of these very dry statistics right. about total factor productivity growth or how much we're investing in capital or whatever, you know, your sort of favorite flavor of economic development research might be. But I think for a long time, we've sort of divorced that from the, the conversation about what an economy is for. And I think as Catholics, certainly, and, and as a lot of people of goodwill across the political and ideological spectrum, would recognize and agree that at the end of the day, an economy is no good if it's not uh, serving families, that, that you know, the, the man is not made for the economy, the economy mm-hmm. is made for man, right? And, mm-hmm. and there's that famous RFK uh, quote uh, back in the 60s talking about how GDP measures all these things that are important, but they don't tell us anything that's essential about, you know, sort of the quality of people's lives. And so if we have an economy that, um, you know, maybe is forcing uh, people into unsafe working situations or, or to make choices about their family life that, that they wish they didn't have to, but they feel like there's no other way to, to, you know, make ends meet, we really need to be critical about some of those choices that we've either made or chosen not to make. And, and recognize that the way that we set the status quo is not sacrosanct, that we should be interrogating the public policy choices that can affect people's lives. Because the, the battles over marriage and abortion and all these sort of hot button cultural issues, which are very important, often boil down in some degree to economic incentives. I'll g- give you an example. Yeah. Um, in the tax code right now, if you're a low income family, uh, or I should say a low income household, and you have kids and you're cohabitating with your partner, 
you're often going to face a marriage penalty if you decide to get married. In the EIT, the Earned Income Tax Credit Program, you'll get much less benefit from the government if you decide to get married and do the right thing and, and you know you want to be together and, and provide for mm -hmm. the kids uh, as opposed to if you stay legally cohabitating uh, but without uh, you know, getting a marriage certificate. And we know social science tells us this is worse for the kids. It's a much more, less stable environment. It's worse for the, the partners involved because they don't feel that permanence and that sense of fidelity that comes from marriage and really has an, an impact on people's lives. And if you look at the administrative data and the research that's out there, these really, these tax penalties in the tax code that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, well, who, who's getting married for the for the tax benefits, well, some people are dissuaded from marriage because of them. And they recognize that when they're just trying to make ends meet, um, they're gonna be facing a, a harder, you know, a, a bigger tax bill and they're they're gonna receive fewer uh, benefits that they might be counting on. And so those are the kind of things that when we talk about being pro-marriage and pro-family, we need to be recognizing that our economic policies can have an impact on that as well. You have a lot of uh, other suggestions about ways that we could do things differently. You mentioned the the tax policy about uh, giving a benefit to those cohabitating versus marriage, but you also talk about some other things. You talk about um, education policy. You talk about child care tax credits. Um, you talk about um, health care and housing issues. Um, I, I noticed one of your stories, uh, you, you, one of the articles you wrote, I, I guess you were you had given a presentation like this and, and Father Spitzer had asked you, okay, well, well, tell us exactly what you mean by that. Give us the five things and you kind of spit them out. Go ahead and run through some of the yeah. things that you think we're doing wrong today and we could do better. Sure. Yeah. So, so my, you know, guiding light to approaching public policy questions, this comes from my time on the Hill. I worked at Catholic Charities before then and, and really just in my work now at EBBC is thinking, okay, what is the way to approach these public policy problems that's going to make life easier for families? And a lot of times when we look, again, like we said, like we talk about, you know, the housing market, you might not necessarily think, oh, that's an example of pro-family policy. But when housing gets more expensive, we know from the research that people feel uh, poor because they're paying more of their money toward their mortgage or their or their rent, and so they have fewer children. And so if we want to encourage people to be forming families and having kids, we need to be pursuing a, a policy that makes it easier to build housing and, and restrict uh, getting mm -hmm. rid of some of the restrictive zoning regulations and some of the environmental laws that especially on the West Coast where I'm from or up in the Northeast can really drive up the cost of housing for, for families. And again, nudge people towards cohabitation or, or away from having kids because they just simply can't afford it. So that's kind of how I approach a lot of questions. I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of debate. I don't know how, how closely, you know, your listeners may have followed it, but in DC, certainly over the last year, there's been a lot of conversation about this expanded child tax credit yeah. that was uh, included. Uh, right. And and so that's, that's an example of thinking about you know, supporting families across the income spectrum uh, through the tax code, but it doesn't necessarily have to look explicitly like a cash benefit. It could be something like, um, you know, uh, the the school uh, you know, educational choice that you're talking about, making sure all families are are eligible for that. I know Illinois has has a, a fledgling uh, tax credit program, which is great, and 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 uh, you know, keep hoping to see that continue to grow. That's what we and, do, and making as many <laughs> families eligible for it as possible. Right, exactly. So. Uh, yeah, and, and similarly with healthcare and, and some of the other issues as well, thinking about where are the, the pain points for parents? How, where, where, when they're living their lives, what keeps them up at night? And how can 
it, we you know understand where there is an appropriate role for the government to intervene without you know trying to blow up the the principles of a free market economy which we're which we're used to and, and which america you know runs on very well but sometimes those incentives just need to be aligned to help stabilize families you also talk about, um, you mentioned the candidate in Arizona, Blake Masters, who's running an interesting campaign and I think is basically, uh, I think I, I, I saw an ad from him as, and he was basically saying, look, vote for me because one of the pledges I'm making to you is I want to look at returning to the days of uh, families being supported by one wage earner. And that would free up the other spouse to care for a parent, care for a child or a parent, et cetera. It's an interesting, it's an interesting campaign. And I think in one of your stories, you mention, ironically enough, that like the the era of one wage earner providing for the family was really like like four or five decades. And historically, that's really not been the case through human history. But I think a lot of people, both lower middle income and I'll even say upper income people right now are stretched because they're trying to balance work and caring for a child, children, I think as you are and I am, but also on the other end of the spectrum, caring for an aging parent. And what public policies could we promote that would give some people more flexibility to do that? Because I think that's an incredible grind on, you know, I'm probably considered middle to upper middle class. I, I, everybody I know is caring for children and or aging parents and work stuff. So I, I, our, our economy is changing. Uh, I don't want to make this too much into a COVID conversation because that's all we ever talk about. But, you know, the work situation is changing. And, and I, I think our laws and our practices are, quite frankly, antiquated. And, and I don't know how to break that. But talk a, little bit about, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I think there's a couple things there. I think, first of all, yeah, uh, Blake Masters out in Arizona is running a really interesting campaign and really being explicit with that vision yeah. of, of saying, you know, if you're a family that wants to live on a single income, we should make it more feasible for you to do so. Now, you know, I think that's probably best pursued by just trying to wage wage wages across the board. Um, you know, things like, you know, we actually the last four years prior to COVID, we saw tremendous wage growth yeah. across the income distribution. And so, you know, obviously we were doing something right there. And I think, you know, hopefully returning to that once once COVID is sort of flushed out of the system um, is going to be great, uh, for especially for those low, low and middle income workers. Um, but you know, but I, but what he's speaking to is uh, is a broader cultural sense, um, and this is something that's been talked about by uh, people as far left as, as Senator Elizabeth Warren, and on the right, uh, people like Tucker Carlson have said, you know, we've we've sort of prioritized uh, an economy that sort of assumes a, a two income model, um, and and there's a lot of families, especially if you look at the polling data, families with young kids, unsurprisingly tend to say they wish they had more flexibility to spend more time at home in those early years when, uh, when you know, you don't get those back when your kids are, are two or three or, right. or, or younger than that. And so uh, especially for, for it, it tends to be moms, but it can be parents of either gender, uh, especially for those who, who aren't pursuing what we would consider, a, a, you know, a, a high powered career, right? If you're just working to make ends meet, uh, you're working at a, at a uh, you know, a manufacturing facility or as a receptionist somewhere, um, you know, it, you might like your job, you might not mind your job, but but at the end of the day, family comes first and foremost. And so if we're, especially in this era of, as you mentioned, COVID and all the changes that are going on, if we can be pursuing uh, workforce policies that make it possible for more families to have flexible situations that they, you know, I don't think anybody's interested in, in trying to mandate that, that, you know, one parent has to stay home. But again, parents 
who want to, who, who want to have the choice to have a parent at home, making it easier for them to find uh, working arrangements that are going to provide them with, with the stability and the benefits that they're looking for, but also um, giving them uh, flexibility. And at the same time, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, there's a lot of cases, especially with lower income workers, um, where you're not finding your schedule until the day before, uh, you know, this, this practice called just-in-time scheduling. Uh, and, and so if you're working at a retail establishment, and you have children, it's impossible to have right. a stable home life because you could be called to close one day and open the next and you don't know your schedule uh, you know, in advance. And so those kind of practices where we've just sort of assumed, well, this is the way that work is and, and they just have to adjust. Yeah. I don't think we have to assume that anymore. We can be saying, look, and again, the, the, the economy, the market uh, should support thriving families. And if there's a practice that's undermining them or making it harder for them to, to achieve the balance that they want, Let's let's see if there's ways for the, the government to gently intervene and, and reorient it in a different direction. Uh, again, this doesn't mean uh, going all the way towards, um, you know, again, you mentioned some of our, our friends on the right who are enamored with with um, what Hungary is doing. I think that that model is not going to work in the U.S. Yeah. We, we're a much more libertarian country than that. We don't yeah. want the government, uh, you know, putting up billboards, encouraging people to have more kids and that sort of thing. But um there, there are ways that we can be more creative about giving parents more options, and yeah. I think that's what we should be doing. Let's take a quick break. I uh, kind of lost track of the time here, so I'm not sure what our time schedule is. Like. Let's take a quick break. Um, they're going to run some PSAs. We'll come back. And I have some other questions I want to buy you before uh, we let you go. Patrick, uh, hold on just a second, and we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Sounds great. 